Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Rhode Island representative, Leonella Phoenix. She shared her journey from the Dominican Republic to the Rhode Island legislature. We talked about how she's trying to bring more diverse voices and experiences and ethics to government, why she's passionate about criminal justice reform and how she balances work, public service and life. Finally, she makes the case for why Rhode Island is small but mighty and it's where you need to go for your next getaway. Enjoy. Rhode Island Representative Leonella Felix, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Look forward to talking to you today. Same here, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start today with your journey? It's not everyone who starts in the Dominican Republic and ends up in the Rhode Island legislature. Tell us about that path. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the question. So I am the proud daughter of immigrant parents from the Dominican Republic. We were actually born in Boston here in the U.S. And when we were about nine, and I say we because I am an identical twin, so you'll always hear me say we. And when I was about nine years old, my uncle was deported to the Dominican Republic. And our family decided to allow for family unity to actually relocate to the Dominican Republic. And we were there for several years. I did all my schooling there. And then once my parents divorced, I was about 15 we actually came to Rhode Island and we've been here ever since. And actually the funny thing is I'm a, I came to the district that I now represent. So I've been in my district the entire time, almost the entire time that I've been here in Rhode Island. Fascinating. I did not know you were an identical twin. Does your identical twin like politics? Not at all. Not at all. She <laughs> makes me do all the research and every time she has questions, she reaches out, but she's getting there. I'm, I'm t- starting to get her interested. And you're not sending her to some of those chicken dinners that candidates have to go to. Play the fifth on that one. You know, you never know. I play the fifth. (laughs) So tell me, you've had a career of service and advocacy and law. What made you run for the legislature? Yeah, before I decided to join, I started working. I first worked in private law firms. And in my mind, I was going to go into the private realm for my entire career working in the immigration field. This this has been my passion for many years and decided to, because I was listening to the same types of stories and the same issues in terms of the people that I was serving, really got interested in terms of policy development and thinking really thoroughly in terms of what can we do to improve people's lives, not just affect one individual. So I started working in nonprofit organizations, working to organize the Latino community. And that really led me into an interest in being in the policy spaces. But as you know, most of our legislatures are not very diverse. And so it was very difficult to be in those spaces as a woman of color and really not feel as if though 
the legislature was representing my interests and the interests of my community. And with that being said, also the current the representative who was there at the time wasn't really representing the values that I cared for, the issues that I believed our community needed and deserved to be advocated for, or that he was raising our voices up at the legislature. And following a vote in the House where the representative abstained from voting for codifying Roe v. Wade at the time, I just got, like many, <laughs> many others, extremely angry and decided, you know what, it's time to run and it's time to bring up fresh perspective and a new voice to the state house. Tell me about that race and going out and connecting with voters and what that was like. Yeah, and it was during the pandemic. So good thing is that folks were home. Bad thing is that it was very, very difficult to talk to folks with masks, <laughs> yeah. to, uh, connect with them that way, especially with the fear of contracting the virus. So, but I found it really enjoyable. I actually really had a lot of fun going around the neighborhood, meeting our neighbors and being able to talk with them as a, at a safe distance. And then being able to really listen to the issues that were happening with them. And whether that was at the local level and may not be things that the legislature can address, but we can also liaise and help them solve those issues to issues at the national level, at the state level. So it was really great to be able to listen to various perspectives and then be able to use those stories and those experiences to then advocate at the state house for various policies and laws that we've been able to enact. And you mentioned that our legislatures don't reflect the diversity of our communities or our country. Once you moved from an advocacy role into that seat, and we're trying to bring more representation, can you talk about a little bit about what that experience was like and both the opportunities and the challenges it created? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the question. So in the since 20, I'll go a little bit back, since 2016, we've had the privilege of having been able to elect really awesome leaders up to the legislature. So right now, I'm a, we have about 21 members who identify as people of color, but we, we have it more expansive. So I'm actually the chairwoman of, a co-chair of the Rhode Island Black, Indigenous, Latino, Asian American and Pacific Islander Caucus. And we have from Indigenous folks to Latino folks, Black, and so on and so forth. So it has been a bigger representation, but just in the House, we have 175 members. So to only have a, fra- a small fraction of those to be people of color is not sufficient. We know that our lived experiences really shape the policies and the values that we bring to our advocacy, really shape the values that we tend to advocate for and push and the issues that we tend to push at the legislature. So it's extremely important to have those voices and the challenges around not having them is really that it takes a lot of effort and time, which we don't have as a part-time legislature, to really try to help our colleagues understand and educate them in terms of the issues and how they affect our communities. Versus when someone comes from our communities and understands those issues, they're very, they're able, they're receptive to them. Many are non-receptive because the simple fact that they just don't understand how a particular issue may affect a community different than theirs. So those are one of, one of the challenges associated with not having a diverse room. And you've been very clear that your priorities are working families, reforming the penal system, and protecting choice. Can you talk about the efforts you made in those areas and the successes and, and again, maybe the places where you're hoping to get some wins in a future legislative session? 
Yeah, absolutely. The the issues that I really care about really come from personal experience. As we said, like personal experiences really matter in terms of policy decision making. And for me, I'm actually someone who's been through the, the criminal legal system and I have felony on my record and was able, because I'm a judge and the current system, go through a diversion program for substance use that led me to being here today and being able to represent my community. And so that's why one of the issues that I really care about is reforming the criminal legal system. One of the things that we were really excited that we got to do in the legislature was that we were talking about doing recreational cannabis for adult use. So doing recreational cannabis, but one of the things that we often don't talk about with these policies is rectifying what the war on drug has done to our communities, meaning in terms of cleaning folks' records, expunging people's records who may have marijuana convictions on them. So one of the things that we, we were able to do and I was able to use my experience to push for was to make the legislation and include the automatic expungement of cannabis records, which today about 23,000 records have been expunged. And now we're moving to phase two, which is identifying multi-charges that can be expunged as well. So that's a really exciting, tangible win for for being in the legislature. So it, it just gives me that energy to continue and move forward. There's been others in terms of housing as well. We know that housing and security and instability is a big issue around the country right now. And we've been able to push about 13 bills last session alone in terms of addressing housing instability and everything from prohibiting fees from being collected for rental properties and to banning sources of income. We've done that before and so on. So it's like we reformed actually also our zoning laws to enable municipalities to be able to build affordable housing. I carried a legislation to build more housing around transit hubs because it makes it easier not only for communities to be able to get around if you're near a transit hub, but also for our environment. So it serves that dual purpose. If folks are not relying on vehicles, they can take public transportations, they can walk to different places. So I'm really proud of the work that we did. And it was led actually by our speaker, Joe Chikarchi, in terms of ensuring that all of these bills got through the finish line. That's amazing. And I mean, the expungement alone, 23,000 people, that's a lot of lives changed in a pretty dramatic way. Absolutely. Many of us would think, oh, Rhode Island is a blue state. And so it's just easy to do all these, do all this reform and protect a woman's right to choose and other, other initiatives. You and I both know that nothing is easy. Can you talk about how you built coalitions around some of these or brought information to your to your colleagues in order to get these things across the finish line? Yeah, absolutely. It's as much as we are a blue state, I always say that we have colleagues who are more purple than blue. And that's because in the, we are have, we do have a supermajority and many recognize that by being under the label of Democrats, it's the only way or particularly in those communities that can be one. And so many of the policies and the discussions that you have with folks, even if they do identify or claim to be Democrats are not really aligned with the values of the Democratic Party. With that being said, one way that I've been able to gap that bridge between the different issues and different perspectives of my colleagues is in terms of, again, relating my personal experiences, relating those of my community and helping them understand, not from a place of badgering or insulting or anything like that, but more of a, here's from a place of love, like here are the things that really I care for. And this is how these policies are harming, whether that's with data, 
whether that's with personal experience, although I find that personal experiences are more impactful than any data that I can provide. One example is I was working on legislation regarding classifying workers, home workers as employees as for the designation, and folks not really understanding why that matters, right? Why is it important for folks to be designated? And at least for that legislation, it was more in terms of legal, legally and, and bringing all the policies and stuff. And then I'll give you another example where in terms of trying to sway folks, we were talking about changing a legislation, the definition of a legislation to be more broad rather than women, to be parents, right? Because we, we talk about in being inclusive and to, in terms of transgender folks in particular, like make sure that they feel inclusive. And just folks didn't understand why we weren't saying women. And it took going to our colleagues and explaining, you know, not only women get pregnant and then explaining the background. And, you know, some of, some of them are older, so may not understand those dynamics. So providing that those experiences and bringing, bringing the experience of my constituents in terms of what they've lived through was really helpful in getting them to change their vote and being able to support the legislation. So things like that is, is the way that I've been able to go across the line. Doesn't always work, but I'll keep pushing. <laughs> <laughs> always keep pushing. You're busy in that you're, you have a legal practice. As you said, the legislature is a part-time legislature. How do you balance it all? And also, how do you decide where's the best use of your time and your priorities going into legislative sessions? Yeah, thank you for that question, Ryan. So I always joke around that although this is a part-time legislator, I have two full-time jobs because there is nothing part-time about the part-time legislature whatsoever. And it's difficult, and it is difficult to juggle between full-time employment and my responsibilities as a legislator. And unfortunately, there's many places where in things that I want to do that I can't. In particular, so I work for the city of Providence. And per our ethics rules, I'm prohibited from doing outside work during city time, right? So while many colleagues are, because they have their own practice or work elsewhere, are able to, let's say, check emails and post things and attend events, I can't because I'm prohibited by our ethic rules. And I also do ethics for the city of Providence, so it would be really bad if I'm breaking all the ethics rules, right? <laughs> so one of the ways that I've been able to balance the two roles is by trying to figure out different schedules or different categories of schedules. So I try to do my, my daytime job in the daytime and then at nighttime eat something, try to relax for a little bit, and then maybe watch Netflix and do some emails. Maybe try to go to different events in the evenings or take time off to go to those events that are in my community that are really important. So it's a really delicate balancing act, and things do fall through the, through the cracks in terms of trying to get it, but that's the nature of part-time legislatures. And one day I do hope that we will become full-time so that we can better represent our communities, but in the meantime, we'll, we'll play the juggling game. I actually want to ask about that ethics piece because both your state has a history of some ethics challenges. And also we're talking about this in the context of the Supreme Court where we've seen some really egregious ethics violations. And what's your perspective with your ethics hat on as somebody who has to live in all these worlds on the role that ethics can play in government? Yeah, it plays a crucial role, right? It's the way that people see us and in terms of elected officials and the state and also the, the government, whether that's local, municipal, counties. When you have elected officials breaking ethics rules, and it could be actually breaking ethics rules, or you could be perceived as 
breaking an ethics rule, just treating that line. And so it's something that I always tell the officials and elected officials that I work with in my day role that it's not about whether you're doing something that's not appropriate. It's the appearance of impropriety that you really have to worry about, right? Because most of us don't don't want to do the what's wrong. You know, you always want to do what's right and you want to follow the rules. So it's being cautious about the appearance of impropriety because that erupts public trust. And if folks don't believe in our government, don't believe in our institutions, what happens is exactly what we have going on now where they just either don't participate in it, right? Whether that's not coming to the legislature or because they can't or trying to get public services because they don't believe that they're they they're in the best interest. But it, it really does a lot of bad in terms of trying to be able to ensure that folks are engaged and that that we have the public's trust. So what's next for you from a policy priority in the areas that you've outlined or in areas we haven't talked about yet in terms of where do you see op- opportunity in the legislative session coming up? Yeah, I think there's many opportunities, particularly with the criminal legal reform is one that um, we're trying to figure out in terms of expanding the automatic expungement to include other provisions, other uh, offenses. So doing a clean slate program like other play, other jurisdictions have done and have been successful at. The other that we're trying to do is how do we fund our public transit system? So they're going through a crisis right now, as many across the country, in terms of the sustainability of them. I have a legislation in terms of making one of our, making RIPTA free, which is the Rhode Transit Authority, making it free. But right now it's less about making that free and more about making sure that it's available, readily available and equitable, making sure that they run on time rather than making it free. We can go there once we public, we fully fund it and ensure that, that our communities have access. Other things that I'm interested that may not be in the legislature and outside is how do we, I have a community that's older and how do we make sure that folks have access to resources, for example, doing eviction clinics, which is what we've been doing this summer. We, we've been doing expungement clinics as well. And one that I'm really interested in doing now is ensuring that parents take advantage of until 2025 when the regulations change in terms of the parent loan forgiveness or the parent loan servicing in terms of being able to consolidate their loans, refinance and apply for those safe plans so that they can save some money. Because right now folks are going through really, really tough economic times. So any penny that we can help them save, it's it's a win for me. So those are kind of the things that I'm looking at. I like it. Well, I look forward to just watching you push those initiatives and make real impact in your community. I'd like yeah. to ask just because I think not everyone gets to go, but if I had a week to spend in Pawtucket or Providence and or if I'm thinking about moving somewhere, like make the case for your community and what what may be different than what people imagine about Rhode Island. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So a lot of people don't know in terms of Rhode Island. Yeah, we might be small, but we're mighty. You can go 30 minutes one way and end up in a beautiful beach. You can go 45 minutes and end up in a little island surrounded by the beach. Or you can go on the other opposite directions. You can end up in Maine in, in no time, in, other, in Boston in 30 minutes and so. So it's a really great place to be, especially for folks that like to be transient and move around and get to know different places. It won't take you long to get to different locations. And in terms of living here, 
not only are we extremely diverse and we, we have amazing food from all over the world. I think in Providence alone, we have 174 languages alone that we speak. And that's just Providence, which is a capital city. Amazing, amazing entertainment, amazing food, amazing people. So I think you guys should just move here. Everyone should just come and join us. <laughs> well, uh, the only thing is the cold, though. I need to warn folks. It's cold. And I'm from Dominican Republic, and I'm always cold. So that's my only downside. Yes, I can imagine. I'm out in California. I love Rhode Island. I spent some time there. but but need some uh, sunshine if you don't mind. Just yeah, I might I might wait till the summer months come back. You don't mind. <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you. <laughs> I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Also, thank you for being part of New Deal. All these ideas that you're talking about, you can deploy in Rhode Island. You can deploy them in states and communities across the country. And having a leader like yourself who's able to champion them is really important. And so we we love having you as part of the network. And then thank you for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. And I, I'm grateful for, to be part of the New Deal and all the experiences and expertise that you guys have brought my way to enable me to push for these policies is really helpful. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.